Today's scripture lesson comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is the word of God. Friends, I invite you to pray with me. God, I pray that that you will give me the words to say during this time. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. In the last several months, I've had a lot of opportunities to hear people talk about the topic of unity. Unity is an important topic, it's an important Christian topic, but is again one of those words that we use in the Christian community and we don't pause to define what we mean by unity. If you go to the dictionary and look up the word unity, you'll get a definition such as the state of being united. Well, that didn't help me much when I looked up the word unity. So our secular dictionaries are not very helpful when it comes to what unity actually is. So I'm very, very grateful that the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians chapter 4 tells us very specifically what Christian unity is. And as you notice, we begin reading at chapter 4, verse 1. If you know the writings of the Apostle Paul well, you know that in almost all situations, particularly here in Ephesians and in places like the book of Romans, Paul will talk doctrine, theology, beliefs first. And then at a certain point in his letter, he will make the turn and starts to apply the doctrine, the theology, or the beliefs, and begin to talk about what practical Christian living looks like. In the book of Romans, he does that beginning in chapter 1, chapter 12, verse 1. Here in Ephesians, he does it right here in chapter 4, verse 1 and following. Up to this point, and this is something really important to understand, up to this point, Paul, in the letter to the Ephesian Christians, he has been speaking about doctrine. He has been speaking about the theology as to what it is that Jesus Christ has done, who it is that Jesus Christ is, and now that we have embraced this, how then should we live? Paul always does it that way. First the theology, then the practical Christian 
living. If you notice in the text, he makes a very dramatic shift here. And he uses a really important Bible word to catch your attention, to make sure you understand he's making a shift from talking about doctrine to talking about practical Christian living. He says at the beginning of verse 1, chapter 4, Ephesians, I therefore. The word therefore is an important Bible word. Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what is it therefore? When he says therefore, he is pointing us back to everything that he has said thus far. So the therefore here points you back to chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. He's saying, in light of everything that I've said to you up to this point, I want to say this to you now. He says, I therefore, and notice he refers to himself as the prisoner in the Lord. We do know that this that this letter to the Ephesian Christians was written while Paul was in prison. He was in prison there in Rome. You can still visit the Mamertine prison today and see where Rome held their prisoners there in the capital city of Rome. He wrote this letter while he was in prison, but Paul liked to always remind his readers or his hearers that he was not a prisoner of the Roman Empire. He was not first and foremost a prisoner of the Caesar. He is a prisoner in the Lord. He is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's first and foremost in bondage to to Jesus Christ. And because he lives in the fear of the Lord, he fears no human being. Because he has his relationship right with Jesus Christ, no one else can do anything to him to harm him. He wants you to know he's not a prisoner of the Roman Empire. He is a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he uses the word beg. That's a strong word. It's a strong word in the Greek. He uses the word beg. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you. Has anyone begged you for anything this week? Paul is begging us to do something. He says, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's begging us. Now that we're in Christ, and he spent the first three chapters here talking about what it means to be in Christ. Now that we're in Christ, he's begging us to live a life, to walk a walk that is worthy of that calling we have in Jesus Christ. There is absolutely nothing we could ever do to earn or to merit the salvation that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. Nothing. But once we receive the gift of new life in Christ, Paul would say to us, I beg you now that, you now that you've received that gift to walk in a way, to live in a way that is worthy of that calling. And he's going to paint a little picture for us here as to what that life should look like. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. These are some amazing terms that Paul is using here. He starts with the word humility. That's one of the more interesting words used in the New Testament because we don't really find the word that Paul uses here 
in Greek or then later in Latin vocabulary. This is something that many of us think Paul created, the specific word he uses for humility here in the Greek. Even if you've only watched movies from the 1950s about the Roman Empire, you recall perhaps that for the Romans, they esteemed values and virtues like pride, power, strength. They didn't esteem virtues like humility. Paul starts with humility here because as Paul taught and as the Christian faith has taught for the last 2,000 years, it is humility that is the foundation for all other virtues that God wants to give us. Unless we are living a humble life, unless we have humility at the center of our being, then none of the other virtues will we ever receive from the hand of God. And humility, we need to make sure we understand what the Christian faith means by humility. Humility does not mean that you think less of yourself. It just simply means you think of of yourself less. You're not always thinking about your will, your wishes, your wants, your desires, your schedule, your plans, your goals first in life. But that the Lordship of Jesus Christ comes first. And in humility, we want more than anything else to want what he wants for our lives. That's why being humble is not necessarily being a doormat for other people. Being humble means that you have placed Jesus Christ at the center of your life. You want him and him alone to rule and to reign in your heart and therefore in your life. So we are to walk this walk with all humility and gentleness. Gentleness is another interesting term that Paul uses. It it literally means from the Greek, power under control or power under restraint. You know, in the Old Testament, we read that Moses was the most gentle person who ever lived. He was the meekest person who ever lived. Moses. And even if when I say the word Moses, you automatically think about Charlton Heston, that's okay. Just think about Charlton Heston. There's a picture of biblical meekness, biblical gentleness, power under control. Being gentle, being meek does not mean you don't have power. It means you know the gift of the Spirit, which is self-control. So humility, gentleness, and then here comes patience. Uh, We're all on a journey learning to, to live this way in our daily lives. I'm still on a, what's been a lengthy journey, learning patience. Patience means that we believe every moment in life is a moment pregnant with great possibilities from God. Even if you're standing in line waiting for a really long time to get to something else or somewhere else, even that moment that you feel like you're wasting can be a moment that's pregnant with the possibilities of God. Impatient people are always wanting to get to a different place, different time, different event. But patience means we value the moment in which we find ourselves. We don't 
We don't wish away our lives trying to get to the next moment. Patience means that we believe every moment is a moment that God can use to do something great in our living. The word patience in the Greek literally means to have a long temper. We never talk about anyone with a long temper. We talk about people having a short temper. We know what a short temper is. Patience in the biblical concept is having a long temper with the people around you and with life in general and even with God. You notice that Paul tries to explain patience by saying bearing with one another in love. Patience is very close to the virtue of forbearance. We bear with one another. We bear with one another in love. We ought to strive to be as patient with each other as God has been patient with us. You notice now that Paul has painted this picture for you, he's going to make the turn to talk about unity. And he's not going to be vague like Merriam-Webster. He's going to be very specific concerning what unity is in the Christian faith. Look at verse 3. Making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what is unity in the Christian faith? You notice that as soon as Paul broaches the topic, and this is really the only place Paul broaches the topic. What he says here gets repeated in Colossians, but it's almost word for word. What Paul says here, as soon as he broaches the topic of unity, he makes sure you understand it is unity of the Spirit. Unity from the Spirit. Unity as a gift from the Spirit to the body. Unity is a gift from God. That's the way we envision unity. It's not something we create. It's not something we orchestrate. It's not something we control. It is something that is a gift from God. The unity of the Spirit that brings about and lives in the bond of peace. To make sure we understand what he's saying, Paul goes on then in verses 4 through 6 to paint a picture as to what Christian unity looks like. A lot of us believe that these verses, verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4, really are a piece of an early Christian creed, a creed that was perhaps used in worship so that people could understand what it was that they were to accept what it was that they were to bring into their lives through which they might be able to achieve unity. Again, notice where Paul writes about unity. Only after he has dealt for three chapters with theology and doctrine and belief, he then turns to talk about unity. He begins to describe unity this way. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Notice the repetition of the word one. Paul is being very intentional right here, repeating that word one. The basis of our unity is in our convictions. The basis of our unity is in our doctrine, our theology. That's why Paul only starts to talk about unity after he spent three chapters talking about theology. Our unity comes from an understanding 
that there is one body, and the body of which he speaks is the church, the body of Christ, the physical presence of Jesus animated by the Spirit of Jesus now in this world. Every believer since Pentecost is part of this one body, one faith. When he mentions when he mentions uh, one faith, after he, he goes for one spirit, one body, one spirit, is that spirit. And I want you to notice the Trinitarian function here. He's going to talk spirit, and he's going to talk Lord, and he's going to talk God and Father of all. Notice that after one body, one spirit, because it is the spirit that indwells us that connects us with the one body. It is the spirit that indwells Christian believers that brings us into the relationship with the body. And then there's the one hope, the one hope that we share, that theology of eternal life and everlasting life, the one hope of your calling, one Lord, and we know of whom he speaks, one Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was prophesied by the Old Testament. We need to see that there. Jesus Christ was completely and perfectly revealed in the New Testament. Everything we know about our Lord Jesus Christ is revealed to us in the Bible, and we need to make sure we understand that so that we don't create a Jesus of our own making. Everything we know about Jesus, we know from the Scriptures. One Lord, that means He is the incarnation of God. The word Lord is only used for God in the Hebrew Scriptures. He's also master, controller, ruler of our lives. One Lord, one faith. One faith. When I hear Paul talking about the one faith, I think about Jude chapter 3, where Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, Jude wrote to the church and said, please, I urge you, contend. Contend. There are some things worth being contentious over. He says, contend for the faith once delivered by the apostles. We don't reinvent. We don't revision. We don't re, reprogram the faith. We just pass it on from generation to generation. We believe that that faith that was once delivered by the apostles to all of us is a faith that will have great application in all of our lives, regardless of which age in which we live or who we are. So there's one faith. There's not multiplicity of faiths. One baptism I think when Paul talks about baptism here, he's not talking about the mode of baptism. I know a lot of times Christians, as soon as they think about baptism, they think about the mode of baptism. And perhaps you know that in the Methodist tradition, we say in print that we will, we will sprinkle, pour, or immerse. Uh, if you want me to, I'll get a water hose after you. Um, we would use any, any mode for baptism uh, we've said that since the beginning of our movement. We use any mode for baptism because it's not about the age of the person or the amount of water. We'll use any mode for baptism. All the different modes of baptism have strong symbolic significance. We uh, always use water. I, I try to understand my Quaker brothers and sisters. You, you probably know that Quakers don't use water in any form or fashion. I guess they dry clean is what they do. But other than the Quakers, all of us use water in some form or fashion. But Paul's not talking about the mode of baptism here. We're going to baptize 11 people after the worship service 
in a few moments out on the lawn of the church. Again, we will sprinkle, we will pour, we will immerse. Because it says more about God than it says about the one, says something about the one being baptized. I think when Paul mentions baptism here, he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, connecting a human being to the body. We are initiated into faith. We are engrafted onto the vine through baptism, the work of the Spirit. So one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then he ends with one God and Father of all. So I hope that you notice the Trinitarian structure here. He talks about Spirit, talks about Lord, talks about one God and Father of us all. I think if you were to sit Paul down and say to Paul, Paul, tell me a little bit more about unity, he would say it's based on our Trinitarian theology. If you want to know about unity, look at the Trinity. Three in one, one in three. One purpose, one plan, one desire, one dream, one set of convictions. So you see this Trinitarian formula here as Paul elucidates what it means to be united to the world. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all, especially in the lives of believers. So that's what the Bible says about unity. One of my favorite Bible teachers who's now on the other side in the, in the fuller presence of the Lord is Warren Wiersbe. I don't know if any of you know Warren Wiersbe. He's a great Bible teacher for decades uh, here on this side of eternity. Uh, when he dealt with this passage, he said this, people today attempt to unite Christians in a way that is not biblical. For example, they will say, we are not interested in doctrines, but in love. Now, let us forget our doctrines and just love one another. Love's not enough. When the ecumenical movement began in the early 20th centuries and all the different denominations thought they needed to come together as one, they were coming together under a motto that said, doctrine divides, service unites. That didn't last very long because most of the Christian community realized how that undervalued doctrine what you believe is important. Today we wouldn't say doctrine divides, service unites. We might would say, as Warren Wiersbe says, doctrine divides, love unites. But again, we need to make sure we understand what we mean by love. The Bible does say that God is love. It is a characteristic of God, but it's not the same thing to say love is God. Sometimes in this culture, they want to turn God as love around to say love is God. And if it can be defined as love, then it's, it gets a pass and it seems to be acceptable. Love is a wonderful thing. Service is a wonderful thing. But it's all got to, it's all got to be built on what it means to believe, to believe in, in Jesus Christ as Lord, to believe in the Spirit as the sanctifier, to believe in the Father who creates and provides for all of us. So there's a little bit about what the Bible teaches about unity, as Paul teaches it here in Ephesians. If you will grant me just a few moments of personal privilege, uh, this is the first time I've been back in the pulpit with you uh, since our vote on August the 27th. Pastor Clark and I returned to the pulpit today. Pastor Clark and I were both 
smart enough to give last Sunday to Pastor Ken. And I know that he did. I watched his sermon. He did a masterful job. And I'm very grateful for the words that he shared with you last week. As we, as we move beyond now, uh, the vote that captures so many people's attention. So if I may have just a few moments of personal privilege, I'd like to say just a few things as we move away from the topic of unity about coming out of the recent vote. I do grieve, I do grieve with those who grieve the results of the vote. You know, we have noticed now for this season uh, since 2019, since 2016, we've noticed during this season that um, if, if our bishops had, had observed the Book of Discipline and enforced the Book of Discipline, this never would have been thrown back to local churches. But it has been thrown back to local churches. And that's why by the end of this year, I think it's probably a conservative estimate that about 10,000 of our churches that are United Methodist will exit to find a new expression of Methodism. I do grieve with those who grieve the results. None of us ever chose this time that we've been in specifically since 2016, but it started before that. So I do grieve with those who grieve the results of the vote. I, I, I never like to see people not get what they want out of life. And we will do the work of healing. We've been talking about this for months now. We will do the work of healing, uh, which is in some ways, I think, exciting. We will focus on our congregational life together to build that unity of the Spirit in our congregational life. Um, as we enter into the fall, uh, you see, for instance, all of, our, all of our opportunities for your participation in small groups. Small groups is a great place to get to know other members of the body. Small groups is a great place to, to do life together, that partnership of living. I, I do encourage you to think about where your small group might be. And there's lots of opportunities for small groups. What your small group might be so that you can go deeper in your faith and go deeper in your relationship with this church family. Um, there'll be great events coming up over the course of the next year that will give us opportunities to share life together. You, you, you've, heard about, you've heard about Rise Against Hunger. I, I do hope that all of you will show up for Rise Against Hunger. Uh, it takes a lot of us to be present, to package those 36,000 meals. And if you can't stand, there's jobs for those who need to be seated. Even the youngest among us can serve during those couple hours as runners between the stations where the meals are being packed and where they are being sealed for delivery to a country that's in desperate need of food. So that's a great congregational event where we can come together. It's a great intergenerational event where we can come together. Oftentimes in a congregation where there's three worship services, people tend to know the people with whom they worship or maybe in their small group. But we, we will be intentional about seeking those ways and those times to come together as, as a full church family. Rise Against Hunger is one of those opportunities. Next Sunday afternoon, beginning at 2 o'clock. Over the course of the next year, 
you, you will hear a phrase that I hope will kind of direct us over the course of the next year. It's, it's, a, it's a theme, it's a direction that we have been discussing for several months now. We're calling it, We Are Wesley, Toward a Future Worthy of Our Past. We are Wesley, that's who we are. Uh, we're the same people that we were a year ago, two years ago. Uh, nothing theologically, nothing socially has changed for our congregation. We're the people we've always been. We are Wesley. We have our own unique culture, as do all churches. We have our own unique culture. We'll always be the welcoming kind of congregation that we've always been that uh, was still part of a denomination, still part of a movement that held to biblical standards. We are Wesley toward a future worthy of our past. Some of you know out in the narthex there's a stained glass window that has that in it toward the future worthy of our past. We're going to find many, many ways to celebrate that over the course of the next year. We are Wesley toward a future worthy of our past. So I do grieve with those who grieve. I do want us to be very intentional about the work of healing, and we've been planning and working on that for quite a while. But we'll do that kind of work so that we can, so that we can move on. After we've done the appropriate work, we will move on. We will learn better how to let go and let God, or perhaps we will even learn a little bit how to do theology uh, according to the Beatles, you know, let it be. We will try to move on, let go, let God, let it be. Try to embrace the future that will be worthy of our past. Try to embrace the future that God's calling to us. I hope that we will continue to use that passage that Pastor Ken brought to you last week from Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he, he shall direct your paths. So we will, we will grieve. We'll work together on our congregational unity so that we can begin to move on, so that we can build. We can build the kind of church that God's calling us to be, a kind of church that's transforming the world around us, the kind of church that will draw people from all over the region, the triad, a church that doesn't just mirror the culture around us, but a church that will help each one of us become the people that God is calling us to be through forgiveness and grace and spiritual growth, making a journey to spiritual maturity, leaving parts of our lives behind so that we can embrace the parts of our life that God's trying to bring into our living. So... There are some exciting days ahead. We've got work to do. I'm so grateful for each one of you individually that's here this morning, that were here last week. And I'm grateful for the ways that you, you by just your presence, are saying you'll help commit to building the kind of church that God is calling us to be. We will seek spiritual maturity together. We will seek forgiveness one from another and we will seek that unity that is the gift of the Spirit. After Pastor, Pastor Clark leads us in professing our faith, that's always a great way to, 
to respond to the proclaimed Word of God. After Clark leads us in professing our faith, we're going to sing a hymn. Uh, you may not think you know. Uh, you'll know the tune. It's the tune of Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. But it's a hymn written by Charles Wesley. And Are We Yet Alive? It's the hymn that for more than two centuries now begins Methodist gatherings in conference. And Are We Yet Alive? It looks back over the past and points us toward the future. And are we yet alive in our earliest days when we did have circuit riders? Oftentimes that meant are we still yet physically alive? In the last couple hundred years, it's come to ask the question, are we spiritually alive? And this hymn by Charles Wesley helps us to embrace what it is that God is calling us to do. So after we profess faith, in response to the proclaimed word. That'll be the hymn we sing.